This is Toastcaster, the communication leadership and learning lab with your host, Greg Gazin. Episode 144, Stories and Leadership Lessons from a Top Gun Instructor with our guest, Dave Bio-Baronic. Dave Bio-Baronic enjoyed a successful and satisfying 20-year career in the United States Navy, starting with assignments to F-14 Tomcat squadrons and the elite Top Gun training program, and on to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a U.S. 7th Fleet. Baronic retired from the Navy in 1999 and is now a defense contractor. He is also the best-selling author of Top Gun Days, Before Top Gun Days, and now his latest, hot-off-the-press, Tomcat Rio, a Top Gun instructor on the F-14 Tomcat and the heroic naval aviators who flew it. I'm starting to see a pattern here. (laughs) (laughs) He is married to his lovely wife, Laura, and lives in Satellite Beach, Florida. Dave Biobaronic, welcome to Toastcaster. Greg, thanks for having me. Uh, it's always fun for me to talk about my experience because it was it was my dream and I got to live it. And even more, it was a lot more than I ever expected. Congratulations on your new book. And I want to put out there that it is most impressive and we are going to be talking about it. We're going to learn a little more about you. And you and I have already been talking for quite a while about some of your adventures. But I know that some of our listeners are probably thinking, how are we equating Top Gun? Isn't that like a movie or maybe aviation history? And what does this have to do with the Toastcaster podcast? Now, let me tell everyone out there that when I first heard and learned about the book and the title, the first thing that popped in... No, okay. I I don't want to do this. The first thing that popped into my head was Kenny Loggins singing... Highway through the danger zone. (laughs) Okay, okay. It happened to me too. That that was good. (laughs) Full disclosure, I am a fan of the movie. I have the soundtrack on vinyl. Okay, I'm dating myself. But here at Toastcaster, the full name of our podcast is Communication Leadership and Learning Lab. And I immediately thought about highly trained individuals like Dave Biobaronic. They also have to be good as Top Gun communicators and Top Gun leaders, because if you think about it, split-second action, reaction, decision can mean life or death. Dave Biobaronic, you are the perfect person to have with us today. Well, you you gave me a good setup, and let's talk about the movie. One of the lines in the movie is when Maverick says, you don't have time to think if you think you're dead or something like that. Now, a lot of those lines are, they're hammed up and they're, they sound good on the screen, but they're corny. But that has some basis in reality. Just to give you the real intelligent professional version of that. One, when you go into combat, you should have a game plan. So you should be able to start executing your game plan and your game plan should include what if my opponent does not do what I expect? You've got to be ready to react at a fraction of a second's notice. But also, if you're dogfighting, a lot of, of your perceptions and reactions have to be almost instinctive, but it's got to be instinct born of education and training. By the time a pilot, and I was a Rio, so I was a backseater in the F-14, which is like goose. As a Top Gun instructor, of course, I worked with many pilots. Anyway, by the time a pilot gets involved in dogfights, he's 
been in uh, training for, you know, hundreds of hours, flight hours and uh, dozens of hours of classes. So he's got a pretty good uh, load of experience before he would even engage the enemy. What is a Top Gun instructor? A Top Gun instructor is a, first off, it's a U.S. Navy or U.S. Marine Corps. Top Gun is a Navy and Marine Corps school. The U.S. Air Force has a similar school. Uh, so most Top Gun instructors are relatively junior officers. They are lieutenants in the Navy, which is the rank of captain in the Marine Corps or uh, Army or Air Force by the, the U.S. It's an O3. It's a junior officer. It's a person who has completed one tour in the fleet, which is about three to three and a half years of service in a regular squadron after their training. They have demonstrated the ability to speak in public, to think, to give a long lecture, two hours or more with no notes, to answer questions, and to fly like an expert and to brief and debrief. So a Top Gun instructor has really demonstrated a lot of abilities in order to be selected as an instructor. If I heard you correctly, you said junior, didn't you? Yes. Junior is relative to the uh, situation, but a, a Navy squadron is typically commanded by a commander. That's the rank of 05. And then he has an executive officer assistant. So those are the two guys at the top. They are the most senior guys in a squadron and their age is going to be around uh, 38 to 42 years old. Wow. And a squadron these days consists of about 12 airplanes and about 250 people. So then below the commander, there are maybe five lieutenant commanders and their ages are about 30 to 35. And then below them, there are probably 12 to 15 lieutenants. And those guys are aged probably 24 to 28. And so the Top Gun instructors will be the best of those lieutenants. And, you know, we've got dozens of squadrons, but there's probably right now, there's probably about 20 Top Gun instructors, maybe a little bit more. They cherry pick the guys they want from any squadron. Everything's got to work out. I mean, it's just, it's a complex process. Greg, I described this in my first book, Top Gun Days, because when I went through, it was a simpler process for selecting instructors. At the end of a class, which was back then, it was five weeks long, the staff reviewed all the people that came through and they identified any that they wanted to invite back to be instructors. And then if they wanted to be an instructor, then they may come back and be a Top Gun instructor. When I became an instructor, I really didn't know exactly how it all worked. <laughs> so once I got there and I, I saw behind the curtain, I go, oh, the reason I, I reveal all that is because the Navy has, uh, has refined its selection process now. And it's for the good of the Navy because they get a lot more benefit out of the people that they identify as Top Gun instructors. You mentioned the word Rio. Yes. Tomcat Rio is in the title of the book. You yourself were a Rio in the movie. It was played by Goose. What's a Rio and why did you choose that route? When I was about 10, 11 years old, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. It was just something that came to me. I wasn't even sure whether I wanted to be in the Navy or the Air Force, but I selected the Navy. And while I was at college, uh, which is a requirement to be a pilot, my eyesight went bad. So there was no way that I could be a pilot. And this was in the late 1970s. And so there was no LASIK surgery uh, here in the USA. So I was distressed for a few weeks, maybe more. But then I realized the F-14, the brand new fighter, had a guy in the back seat who could wear glasses. And I go, well, you know what? 
he's not flying the plane, but that looks like a pretty good job for me. And so I, I set that as my goal. It's still very competitive. It's very challenging. You know, it's not like you just walk into it. The training is challenging and there's a lot of people that want to do it, more people than there are seats. So in the end though, I was, I successfully completed the training and got selected and I was, you know, selected to be an F-14 Rio. So they put the Rio in the F-14 because when the plane was designed in the 60s, they couldn't automate a lot of the radar functions. That was the Rio's main job was to operate the radar. And in addition, the Navy was smart because they had two guys in an airplane. So they assigned the Rio the responsibility for uh, navigation and communications. Now, the pilots that I flew with, they were capable of navigating and communicating, but it was my responsibility in the airplane. Awesome. So does this have anything to do with how you got your name bio? Uh, nope. That's very simple. When them, when we, when I was a new guy, they asked us what we wanted our call signs to be. Really, it's almost kind of a bait and switch because a lot of guys go, oh, I want to be killer. I want to be shark, you know? And, and when you show up in a fighter squadron, you look like, a, you know, a brand new kind of goofy. <laughs> and the guys there have already been around a while and they're not going to call you killer regardless of what you think of yourself. <laughs> so I figured I'd go with the humorous approach. And my last name, Baronic, rhymes with bionic. So I said, I want to be called bionic. Well, Greg, I was very skinny and bionic does not sound good on the radio. So my pilot shortened it to bio and that stuck. And I go, oh, that's a good call sign. I'll take it. You say bionic. I'm thinking of Steve. What's his name? Steve Austin. Steve Austin. Yeah. The Six million dollar man. That's where the idea came from because the when I was asked this was 1981. And so we all grew up watching all the people back then. They knew who the bionic man was. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of youth, you weren't much older than the young Tom Cruise. You actually consulted on the original film. Tell us a little bit about that. That was a, a situation that I look, I look back with amusement. They started to film the movie in the summer of 1985, and I had been a Top Gun instructor for about a year. So I was established in the squadron. I was very comfortable in my place with my duties. You know, everything was rolling along fine. And at this time, even though the world outside didn't know what Top Gun was, the people in naval aviation knew what it was, and it was a prestigious assignment, and I was happy to be there. So this movie comes along. My recollection is we're going like, okay, they're making a movie, big deal. I mean, really, it was not a big deal for us, but they needed us to fly the jets and they also needed us. They asked us about certain points of the plot, about things that we would say in various situations and things like that. All the Top Gun instructors had a pretty good exposure to the actors, all the actors. We flew the airplanes for them. And then uh, a pilot and I went up to Hollywood for two days and helped them write the dialogue for the movie. Nice. It's amusing when I look back on it and as proof of the fact that I, uh, that it was not a big deal, I have virtually no photos of myself with the actors. When I went up to Hollywood, I didn't take pictures, you know, like, oh, here I am at Paramount. <laughs> it's just like, okay, I'm going to Paramount for a couple of days. <laughs> it's just something to do. So you flew the planes, but obviously you were incognito, right? Yes. Uh, there were also some F-14 guys flying as Maverick because the Top Gun instructors, we flew the uh, the A-4 Skyhawks that were used when Maverick and, the, and all those guys were going through the class. And we also flew the Black Jets that were the MiGs. But every time we flew, we had to have our visors down and our sleeves rolled down uh, so that they could cut the film and use you know any film segment 
with any other film segment. So it's not like, oh, in this one, that guy's got a mustache. Oh, now he doesn't have a mustache. You know, continuity when you're looking at a movie. So you're trying to you're trying to do something so that you could discover, oh, that's you. That's me over there. I did that. <laughs> um, we were flying out to uh, film some scenes and I rolled up my sleeves of my flight suit. So I'm sitting in the back of a two-seat. One of the two-seat F5s was painted black and the other three uh, were single seats. So the Rio's got to fly uh, in the two-seater. So I'm sitting in the back of the two-seater. I rolled up my sleeves and I go, I'm going to make myself noticeable. And we're flying along next to the Learjet, uh, which had the cameras in it. And somebody from the Learjet goes, uh, hey, Rio, roll your sleeves back down. (laughs) Darn. So I can't prove that it's me in almost anything, but I think it is me in the, uh, the scene where they're communicating. I was in the, in the MIG and they told us to look up and act surprised, but there's nothing up there. <laughs> they, they added it later as a special effect. It's kind of funny because I was hoping to try to watch the movie once again, but I haven't had an opportunity to do it, but I'm thinking about the famous line tower. This is ghost rider requesting a flyby. That's a negative ghost rider. The pattern is full. Well, we did uh, flybys at the carrier all the time because it was a morale builder for uh, the sailors on the ship. Because normally when you took off from the aircraft carrier, you went out, you know, 50, 100 miles or more, and they launched you from the carrier and then they didn't see you again until you came back two hours later. So if you had the fuel, you might come back a little bit earlier and do a low flyby of the aircraft carrier. Wow. That was something that we normally did. On the other hand, uh, there were... A few rules. I mean, you're out in the middle of the ocean. Everybody's pretty professional. So they gave you a lot of latitude, but there were a few rules. And if you broke those rules, you could get hammered. It might be, you know, don't fly for three days or something like that. If you made a mistake, it could cause some serious damage. (laughs) Well, that's something you learn in naval aviation. There are guys that have uh, tried to show off and either they mess up or, and every once in a while, it was the airplane's fault. Airplane would have a problem and sometimes a person would get killed. That is a tragic way to lose your life showing off. I mean, that's what I was going to ask you next was how realistic was the movie? You know, there's a lot of this fun and glamour, you know, cool sunglasses, cocky attitudes, sort of written for Hollywood type thing. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, there's so much exaggeration in there. The characters are exaggerated. There's, you know a grain of truth because fighter pilots and Rios are assertive, aggressive, confident, competitive, and all those things. But you got to remember that pilot or Rio is in a squadron full of guys like that. If you're, you know, acting like a jackass, you're going to get talked to or beat down or whatever until you figure out your place in the organization to be blunt about it. So obviously this isn't a documentary, and but I'm thinking in the movie, the part about when Goose was killed. What is that all about? Well, that was something that the screenwriters, they put in there as a dramatic, you know, a hook. They showed the Top Gun staff drafts of the script and they requested our assistance with various plot points. And one of the points was, you know, somebody's going to get killed and it's not going to be Tom Cruise. So it's like, sorry, Goose, your number's up. And so, Greg, I hope that spoiler alert doesn't disappoint any of your listeners. So they said, okay, so what was a re- what would be a realistic situation where the Rio could get killed? Well, the, a lot of the Top Gun instructors at the time have, had been F-14 pilots in Rios. And so we were familiar with a situation in the F-14. If it gets into a flat spin, 
when you eject from the airplane, I mean, there's ways to get out of a flat spin, but if you can't get out of it, if you have to eject, you're supposed to jettison the canopy just a second before you eject. Otherwise, you could hit the canopy because of airflow. The canopy kind of tends to hang above the airplane, believe it or not. This was something that was experienced in testing. And like other parts of the movie, there's a grain of reality, grain of truth behind that situation with Goose's death. In my experience, I ejected uh, during my first deployment. I ejected in my first squadron a little bit more than six months after I got to the squadron. I mean, I personally ejected during a carrier landing mishap. But in my case, I was very fortunate. The pilot and I survived. The plane sank. But the cause of the mishap was well known. It was a uh, a mistake on the carrier. I was fortunate. It, I mean, it had no effect on me at all. <laughs> Greg, I am not like an adrenaline junkie or a thrill seeker or anything. I just, I was able to put this ejection, compartmentalize it and go like, okay, that's done. And it was very cool. I mean, it was a fun adventure. But for the rest of my flying career, I I didn't walk out to the plane and say, oh, I hope I don't have to eject again. Neither did the guys that I flew with. And in the fighter squadron, you're very up to speed on safety. If there's a mishap, you study the mishap and examine it to figure out what went wrong. And so, you know, if somebody does something dumb or if they have a problem with the airplane, then you learn from that. But we did not, you know, walk out to the plane spooked. You walked out to that airplane with confidence. That F-14 is 63 feet long. It stands, you know, 12, 15 feet above the ground. And you walk out to that plane and you own that airplane and that's your job. You man up, strap in and get to work. And you feel confident to do that. But we're human. Yes. The fight or flight just kicks in. I'm sure there must have been a time where you had to, quote unquote, ride into the danger zone where you had this life or death situation where you thought, okay, this was it. Can you think of a time that maybe that happened, how you handled it and, and maybe what you learned from it? I will admit that when I was flying over Iraq in Operation uh, Southern Watch, so it was between the combat over there and I get a little bit nervous. Uh, and I write about this in, in my book, Tomcat Rio. Uh, the air wing commander said, uh, we need to put extra bombs on the planes. We may be going into combat tonight or tomorrow morning or whatever. And I'm going like, oh, shoot, you know, that got my attention. And I just said, you know, well, I hope it all works out okay. Stuff like that. Another time uh, when I was facing danger was when I was a, an instructor at Top Gun and I was working with a new pilot who was learning to fly this new airplane. And we had not briefed this one maneuver very carefully. And so we go up to do this maneuver. It's called a rudder reversal. I told him, I go, I think you need to let the plane get down below a hundred knots before you feed in the controls and, and try to make it flip over like this. He goes, no, no, I think it's 120. So we go up, he feeds in the controls at 120. We flip over and we get into an inverted spin. <laughs> and I can remember this as clear as day. So we're upside down. And the world is spinning around. And I look up because that's where the ground was. And I look at what's below us and I go, okay, there's nothing down there. So if we have to eject, the plane is going to land. It's not going to do any damage. And then I was thinking, oh man, I'm the instructor in this airplane. I'm responsible for this. The thing that I had going for me was we were in an F5. The engines were reliable and the spin controls were reliable. And so we pulled out of the spin and didn't have any drama. 
So the other funny thing was we tried it about three or four more times. And every time we got into another inverted spin <laughs> and I could not talk this guy into lowering the airspeed to try it at hundred knots. He kept trying it at 120. So we get back to uh, land and I, I went to one of the other senior pilots and I said, you know, Hey rat, we were just trying to do uh, rudder reversals. Do you feed in the controls at a hundred or 120? He goes, Oh yeah, you got to do it at a hundred. He goes, if you do it at 120, you'll spin every time. And I go, yep. The importance of paying attention to detail and making sure that you're both on the same page or same plane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same plane. Yep. We were in the same plane. <laughs> I guess I was fortunate. I had a few mishaps or emergencies during my flying career. The worst ones were when they lasted a long time. Like later in my career, we had a, uh, the air conditioning turbine failed. And in the F-14, this this was not just a, a comfort item. Uh, sometimes when these turbines failed, they would catch fire and they burn through your controls and start a fire in the airplane and you have to eject. The thing about that was we were flying along for, and it was 20 minutes before we could get to an airfield and land. And so for that whole 20 minutes, you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I hope it doesn't start a fire. Oh, you know, and you're looking around, oh, there's no smoke. Okay, there's... So that's 20 minutes of stress. When I actually had to eject, it happened in you know one second. It was a split second decision. And so it's like one moment you're flying the airplane, the next second you're not. And people complain about the AC not being on in the car or in the office, right? <laughs> <laughs> in our case, we landed with no incident. So that was, we were fortunate. So Dave, we've already touched upon your book a little bit. Tomcat Rio is your third book in a series. Your first one, Top Gun Days the second before Top Gun Days. Tell us a little bit about the book and perhaps maybe what's in general, what's the difference between the three? Okay. Top Gun Days was my first inspiration. And when I thought of that book, I mean, I just, I mean, maybe you, I can compare it to you when you got the inspiration to do the podcast and do this. You just get an inspiration and you just pursue it. I wrote it about my first tour in an F-14 squadron and being a Top Gun instructor, working on the Top Gun movie. And I was very conscious that I was representing the Top Gun squadron, even though I, you know, I didn't get official approval for it or anything. You know, it's got the word Top Gun all over it. You know, I was a little bit serious when I wrote Top Gun Days and I explained things and all that stuff. So then after Top Gun Days was out for a few years, a lot of people asked me, you know, what was your background? How did you get here? So that's when I wrote before Top Gun Days, that talks about my training in Pensacola and in the F-14 squadron. A lot of the book is, I admit, you know, I felt comfortable doing this. I knew I was on the right path, but it's complex and confusing. And I admit that. And I don't mind admitting that because, you know, I, I figured it out and I became an instructor. I want people to get the idea that you're not just born to this. You don't just walk in and and, you know, you're a natural, it takes work and perseverance. Tomcat Rio came about because I met an editor who I really liked working with, Dave Robinson. He, he was a Navy pilot for a few years, way back in around 1960. And then he worked for uh, National Geographic Books. And I go, this is the guy I can work with to write my third book. And so Tomcat Rio, the new book, is a little bit more honest my editor, Dave Robinson, he he made the language in some places a little bit livelier. It's got some of my favorite stories. I talk about when I was, I felt like I was at the height of my abilities as a Rio because I was flying fighters eight to 10 years. 
uh, between my F-14 squadron and my Top Gun Instructor Squadron tour. I was at the best of my abilities and I, I did well in competitions and things like that. And I had fun writing this book. And I also talk about stories where uh, I did a burnout in my Corvette and three policemen were, <laughs> I mean, they weren't next to me, but they were in the area and they, I got pulled over. I tell stories about some of the goofy things that I did and that we did as a group. And then where it's going is later in my career, I was selected to command an F-14 squadron. I had leadership challenges and responsibilities that they were challenging. And I talk about that in there. The big point is that it was an incredibly rewarding experience to command an F-14 squadron. Excellent. Yeah. Going through the book, there's all different types of stories. There's techie stuff. There's lighthearted stories. Yes. You talked about your Corvette and pizza at midnight. There's a 10 page glossary. I don't know how many times I had to go to the glossary because I'd find some term that I wasn't familiar with. And there's some really, really phenomenal pictures. That's an intense looking cockpit. Let me tell you. One thing, I'm glad you mentioned the pictures, uh, because when I was talking to the publisher, if they could use bigger paper, so the pictures would look better. And they did. And when I finally saw the finished books, I was amazed. The pictures are almost twice as big as in the previous books. And they're some of my favorite pictures. And so I'm really happy with how it came out. Oh, that's excellent. Now let's shift a little bit to, to leadership and also in the context of your book. As leaders in any organization, we all have challenges. But I noticed that in your book, you make a specific call out to one and you refer to it as the deadly foe called complacency. Why did you bring that up and how does that fit into your life? Greg, you know, that is uh, part of my I don't know, community service or whatever to feel like I'm a, a responsible citizen. And I've got to credit the pilot I was flying with, uh, Hooter, his name is John Schreiber. He was in a similar situation as I was. We had already completed our first tour as junior officers. We have both done shore duty jobs. I was a Top Gun instructor. He was a instructor pilot. So we had similar level of experiences. And we felt very comfortable in the F-14 flying from carrier ops. We felt comfortable about launching from a ship in the middle of the ocean, tanking, going out and doing a mission and coming back and doing night carrier landings. You know, we're comfortable doing this. Well, fortunately, we made two small mistakes. And the first mistake was his. It was a very small one. And the next day, I made a small mistake. It was Hooter who the light bulb just came on and he just blurted out, we're complacent. Complacency was a code word to us. You know, it's like a, a trigger word or whatever you would say now, because the Naval Aviation Safety people had done a study and they found that at a certain point in their career, aviators, they get better and better, more capable. But at one point they get complacent because they realize they're comfortable. If they can get through that danger area, then they're going to continue to become safer and more experienced. And so Hooter said, we're complacent. And that just got my attention like a smack in the head. It's a lesson for readers. It is a fun business. It's rewarding, but professionalism is required or you're going to do a lot of damage or kill yourself. That's the complacency story. 
But being complacent, it's not necessarily just about not being professional. Sometimes it might be in a situation where you've done the same routine so many times, so many times, so many times, and then you just might forget. I think you made reference to your book, a guy named Zip, that he had to eject. He had to jettison the canopy, but then he almost forgot. Zip remembered to jettison the canopy. Other Rios have forgotten. The complacency thing for Hooter and me was we both forgot one step in our routines. And we were lucky that it was uh, not really significant. We realized it within our cockpit and that was the extent of it. But in terms of Zip, he was a, a young guy. He was in a flat spin over land. It was disorienting. It was anxiety or whatever generating. But he had the presence of mind to do the procedures correctly. And Zip's situation was what killed Goose going back to Top Gun. Goose did not jettison the canopy. Zip did jettison the canopy and they got out clean and they survived. For yourself, you mentioned in the book, there's one passage where you were talking about the, is it the lantern system? Yes. And how you battle complacency? Yes. I was using lantern. Uh, one, I, I learned to use that system late in my uh, career because it was added to the F-14 just before my final flying tour. But it was a well-designed system with good switchology and good interface I had a short trainer, it's called a, you know, a desktop trainer that just had the hand control and a computer. So it's like, you know, push this button, do this, whatever. And then I had one practice flight and then I was qualified to use lantern, but I would bring my videotape back and let our uh, training officer look at my videotape. And I was the squadron commanding officer. I was the CO, the senior guy in my squadron. But the training officer goes, you know, Skipper, you forgot to turn this switch on or you left this switch in the wrong position. I go, yeah. Oh, man. OK. But there it was on the video, you know, clear as day. I made a mistake. So that was a live and learn uh, situation. And that's the way we uh, we operated ourselves. In addition, we were flying over Iraq. There wasn't much going on. They didn't have an Air Force threatening us. and They weren't shooting at us on in these days. But I would sit up there and I would go, I don't want to be the guy who is sitting up here dozing off and gets snuck up on. So I would always turn around in my seat, look behind us, see if anybody was sneaking up on us. I try, I always used all my equipment, you know, et cetera. So is this what happened with, there's a story about Sully and Norton and a gun, if you want to share that one. <laughs> that was a, uh, one of the funniest stories of my entire flying career. We had just arrived over Iraq. Norton was an Air Force pilot who was assigned to our squadron on what's called an exchange tour. And that was great. He was a, a very good addition to the squadron. And we were carrying sidearms on our flights because we were flying over hostile territory. Norton comes back. He turns his uh, pistol into Sully. I've got to say, this is not a famous Sully. This was just a F-14 pilot whose name was Sullivan. And so his call sign was Sully. And so he was the duty officer. So even though he was a relatively junior lieutenant, he was uh, in charge of the of the ready room. He was in charge of managing the schedule. You know, the term we used to say was the direct representative of the commanding officer. He was responsible for handing out pistols and taking them back in. And Norton comes back and gives Sully his pistol. So Sully shoots the magazine out of it. And he's getting ready to put it in the safe. And Norton goes, uh, Sully, you're supposed to check to make sure there's not a round in the uh, chamber. And Sully goes, there's no round in the chamber. I know. And he gives a smart ass reply. Norton goes, no, you need to check it. And Sully goes, look, I'll prove it to you. So he points the pistol at the ground and squeezes the trigger and he fired. There was a round in the chamber. <laughs> Luckily, the round uh, went through a plywood platform. It just 
didn't go anywhere beyond that. No damage was done. Nobody was hurt. And so once again, everybody got a, a very cheap lesson in following procedures and in being complacent. And of course, another leadership lesson is that sometimes it's okay to question authority. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sully did not follow the, the well-known procedures that we had been taught. Sully got a new call sign out of that episode. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Uh, it was sci-fi for Sully, you effing idiot. <laughs> S-Y-F-I, sci-fi. Thank you for giving me the family version of that one. Yep. There's a lot more leadership lessons. There's another one I want to touch upon. Sometimes in an organization, someone might say, well, that's not my job or that's above my pay grade. Not everyone can fly an F-14, but sometimes for the benefit of the team, the crew, the company, the client, whatever, all hands have to be on deck. You talk in the book about everyone, literally everyone taking this two-day training about firefighting. Tell us about how that came about. It's called Shipboard Aircraft Firefighting. I think it's still the same, and, and they did shorten it to one day uh, in the modern age, but it used to be two days long. Every person assigned to an aircraft carrier had to take this training, and I had to take it, uh, I think, three times in my career. You have to take it, you know, if, if you haven't taken it in a while. And the reason is that U.S. Navy had several aircraft carrier fires in the 1960s. Between the three fires, uh, a couple of hundred sailors were killed and many more were uh, injured. One of the lessons was that people who were available did not know how to fight a fire. They said, you know what? In an emergency, when the safety of the ship, the survival of the ship is at hand, we may need a cook. We may need a you know, radar technician. We may need pilots to grab a hose and try to stop this fire. What they did was in San Diego in the, in the 1980s, when they would do this firefighting training, they had hoses that delivered oil. And they would light the oil on fire. It would create a big, giant plume of black smoke. Well, people complained because beautiful San Diego, they didn't want to see this black plume. So the Navy built a hangar and it scrubbed the air so the smoke did not go out into the atmosphere. But what happened was the hangar filled with smoke. And so we're in there manning these hoses, trying to put out this oil fire. The smoke was very dense. I mean, it was scary. You're sitting there and the guys have just spent, you know, a day telling you how to handle a hose, how to fight a fire. And you're one of six people on a team and you've got to work together to keep the hose going back and forth and move forward, advancing on the flames. And I was a lieutenant. I was a team leader. And so it's just a great experience in, you know, mind over matter. And and I was, you know, a very low level leader. That's of our my small fire team. And so we're fighting this fire and then the team next to us, they all fell down. So we had to move our hose and save them and put out their fire and put out our fire. It wasn't really fun, but it was a memorable experience. Yes. <laughs> memorable. Well, here's the thing. Now we've got to contrast a Navy aircraft carrier with an office building, but I think your fire department would probably tell most people, yeah. don't fight the fire, you know, get out of the building because the fire department's going to be there in four minutes or whatever. Right. But on an aircraft carrier, there is a dedicated fire department. But if this thing gets bad, it may require all hands. I don't want to suggest that I'm a qualified firefighter or that I would do that in my building at work today yeah. because we're in a, a developed area with a fire department minutes away. On a ship at sea, it's just you. <laughs> now, in an organization, people may not necessarily have to band together to put out a fire. 
But there might be a situation where perhaps if an individual who specifically takes care of something is not around, if there's someone else that can or is able to fill in at that time, then it can certainly be beneficial to the organization. Greg, that is a very good parallel. Yes, (laughs) there's a lot of lessons there. I'm glad you pulled them out. Nicely done. Uh, Dave, this has been really exciting. It's been a learning experience. It's really great to hear some of the stories that you share in the book come to life. Perhaps let our audience know where they can find the book and if they want to learn more about you or get a hold of you, how can they do that? Okay, sure. I've, uh, I have enjoyed talking to you. Uh, we talked about different things than I, uh, than I normally talk about when I'm talking about my books. I mean, one thing that I enjoyed talking to you about was something that I tried to do in my book, Tomcat Rio, is I talked about some of my my leadership experiences and challenges. And uh, very few leadership positions are easy and smooth all the time. You know, there are rewards, but you also got to earn them. The uh, books are available on uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Other, I've seen them on many online booksellers. If people just want to know more about me or see, read a few flying stories or see some pictures, my website is topgunbio, T-O-P-G-U-N-B-I-O.com, topgunbio.com. Now, I understand as well that this book, first of all, will make a great holiday gift. You also have some bonuses for readers that are on the inside of the book. Is that correct? Uh, yes. I've uh, teamed up with a, uh, a guy who's actually in Australia. We are putting content on a uh, website. And if you sign up with the email that's listed in there, uh, you can get access to that content. Excellent. Dave Biobaronic, thanks for taking the time today, especially this is November the 11th, which is, I believe, Veterans Day for you. It's Remembrance Day in Canada, and I think it's also being honored in other parts of the world. Thanks for mentioning that, Greg, and uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my experiences. See ya. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. A new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com.